The concept of virtue is either maligned or distorted in our culture today. On the one hand, virtue is rejected as pious platitudes and mocked, as movies glorify anti-heroes and villains even. On the other hand, virtue signaling of corporations and celebrities promote false values grounded in a misunderstanding of human nature. The only way forward, it seems, is actually to look back and reclaim the perennial wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas on true virtue and to apply it in our modern times. To that end, in the short time we have together today, I would like to present three topics. I want to look at this wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas and address, first of all, what is a virtue? Second of all, what are the main seven virtues that St. Thomas and the tradition teach us about? And thirdly, an often overlooked but effective strategy for growing in virtue that we can employ in our lives today. Let's start with our first topic. What is a virtue? In the simplest terms, a virtue is a perfection of our human nature. As human beings, we have many different capacities for action, and we soon develop habits that direct these capacities for better or for worse. If they're for better, we call them virtues. If they're for worse, we call them vices. The virtues help us to fulfill what it means to be a human, to fulfill our nature, to lead to authentic flourishing and happiness and contentment. Whereas the vices lead us away from our nature, they frustrate our nature and ultimately lead to misery, even if we might have fleeting happiness along the way. <clears throat> These habits become our second nature and they constitute our character. When we talk about morality in general, we call certain actions good and certain actions evil. What we mean by good or evil is that what is morally good is what is in accord with our nature, while what is evil is what frustrates our nature and our true flourishing. To become virtuous, therefore, is to become most fully human, to realize our full potential as humans and as individuals. We should define virtue. We can define virtue as a habitual and stable disposition to do the good, which makes its possessor good. Now there's two salient features of that definition. First of all, we say a habitual and stable disposition. What do we mean by that? I've been using this term habit quite a bit already. This isn't habit in the normal sense we use that word today. Today, when we mention habits, we usually think of bad habits and we think of things that um, are unthinking, right? like biting your nails or locking your car three times every time or you know, clicking the save button over and over again on a word processing document. That's not what we mean by habits. Those don't engage our full human capacities of free thought and free choice. The word habit in this setting derives from the Latin word habitus. And when Aquinas speaks about a habit, he says that this is a quality of our character that's difficult to change. And this is in, to be distinct from a disposition. Dispositions, we create dispositions all the time. We could think of it as a mere inclination. Anytime we act, we're now more disposed to act in that way again. Maybe we've experienced this, I'm sure we've experienced this in our life. Imagine somebody who tries very hard to be honest. It might be very hard for them to actually tell a lie, but when they do, it's a lot easier to tell it the second time. They've generated a disposition toward lying or maybe vice versa. Somebody who's used to lying all the time it might be very difficult for them to tell the truth, but when they do, it's a little easier to tell it a second time. But these are just dispositions. Any act that we perform disposes us to act in a similar way again, 
but they're easy to change, especially if we already have these firmer and more grounded habits. Habits, again, if they're good, we call them virtues. If they're bad, we call them vices. And habits are quality of our characters that are difficult to change. We're inevitably going to settle into habits as we mature through our life. Our hope is that we're growing in the good habits, that we're growing in virtues here. That's the first part of the definition that's important. We're talking about habits in this technical sense. But the second part is that we say a virtue is a habitual and stable disposition to do the good, which also makes its possessor good. It's not enough to simply consistently or repeatedly do something that's good. It has to also make us good in the process. Now, what does that mean? Well, sometimes we do good things, but we can do them for a variety of reasons. We could do them because somebody forces us to do them. We're under duress. We could do them just out of mere custom or routine. Somebody asks you why you're doing that, and you go, well, I don't know, it's just what you do. It's what you do as a Catholic. It's what you do as a person. Or sometimes we do good things by accident. Maybe we're actually trying to do something bad. Turns out that we did something good. Maybe it's just mere coincidence or an accident. Now, it's always going to be good to do a good thing, but it doesn't make us into a good person until that good action has really been internalized by the subject. That we're choosing the good thing not because of duress or because of routine, but we're choosing it because we know it's good and want to do that good. We desire that good. Somehow we've, we've internalized and we understand why it's good, not just abstractly, but good for me and leads to my human perfection, my individual flourishing. In other words, we must be able to, in order to have virtue, identify the moral law, internalize it, and only then will we be able to act creatively and dynamically and spontaneously from that moral law, not opposed to the law, but a deeper fulfillment of it. And this is what we call the life of virtue. Let's use a few analogies to illustrate the point. Let's take piano playing. We'll take an example of a skill. When somebody's learning to play piano, they start off with the scales. And as they start with the scales, they might think, oh man, this you know, is so boring. Why am I learning scales? I want to learn music. I want to be able to play uh, whatever this song is or that song. We start off with the scales and hopefully the student sticks with it. And after a while, you know, they don't have to write in the letters on the sheet music anymore. They've memorized how to read music. They've memorized the scales, but they also start to internalize it. They grow in an appreciation of the scales because they recognize without these scales, I wouldn't be able to play those other songs. I wouldn't be able to make beautiful music. And because they've internalized the scales, they've learned how to read music, they can start playing those more technical pieces. And maybe they become quite proficient at it, even to the point where They've internalized the scales to such a degree that now they can improvise. They can play a song as it's composed, but they can also add a little flourish. Or they can change the key to change the mood. Or they could devise something all by themselves. They have that great freedom. They have that great excellence. They have that virtue of piano playing. Now, we can imagine somebody who doesn't take that path. They don't want to learn the scales, and so they decide to just try to memorize an individual song. But all they'll know is that individual song, if they can even do it. They won't really have a full appreciation for that song and why it was constructed the way that it was. We could say that both of these people, in some sense, are equally free to play piano. Right? They can both choose to play piano or not choose to play it. But in a deeper sense, our first piano player is freer. They're more excellent. They embody what it means to be a piano player, 
in the way that the second person does not. We could think about this in the life of virtue as well. On some level, are we all free to choose good or to choose evil? Well, yeah, we, we can all choose between those things. But when we choose what's evil, we often become a slave to that evil. We become a slave to our disordered emotions, which makes us unable to choose the good when we want to, or to choose a diverse range of actions. Whereas the virtuous person, they observe the moral law, they don't choose against it. Maybe in the beginning they think, oh, this is, you know, doesn't seem exciting. But over time they internalize that moral law and they recognize the, pur the purpose of it. These aren't just arbitrary impositions on my freedom, but rather they enable my freedom. God says this is good because it is good for me. And that this is bad because it's bad for me. And I understand that. And from that internalization of the moral law, then we have this life of virtue, this creative and dynamic and spontaneous activity where a wide range of freedom is open before us. The generous person has the freedom to say, yes, I will donate, or no, I won't, because I've already donated to other things. Whereas the stingy person can only say, no, I won't donate. So they're less free. Let's take another example. We often talk about moral norms. What about bodily norms? When we're children, our parents have to teach us, don't eat glass. Don't drink those colored liquids under the sink. And as kids, we might think, oh, come on, that's what I want to do. They look like Kool-Aid. It looks, seems fun. But eventually, we internalize those things, and we don't have to think about it anymore. Hopefully, nobody has to write on their hand as an adult, right, don't eat glass, don't drink the liquids under the sink. And we don't see that as an imposition on our freedom, like, man, I really wish that I could eat glass. We, we mature, we internalize those, more, uh, those bodily norms, and then we can act creatively beyond that. We can make our own decisions about what is healthy for me, what's the right amount of exercise, what's the food, when can I indulge, when do I need a fast? Well, the life of virtue should be like that as well. The moral norms, we have to teach young children about them. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. Hopefully, none of us see that as an imposition on our freedom. Like, man, I really wish I could murder somebody, but God said I can't. Hopefully, as we grow in moral maturity, we think, you know, is there anything else beyond this? We don't have to write on our hand, okay, don't kill anyone today. Don't, don't steal anything today. We internalize it, and like the rich young man in the Gospels who goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus starts by saying, well, keep the commandments. Right? You have to start with the moral law. If you don't follow that, then you can't be happy. You can't be virtuous. And the rich young man says, I already do that. But there must be something more. And Jesus says there is. And he, it's the life of perfection. He says to sell your things and follow me. Well, follow me, we could think in this context, Jesus is virtue incarnate. So follow that life of virtue, that greater freedom, that greater human excellence. To be virtuous then, we must, a, a few things must come together. We need to know what the good is, first of all. It can't just be accidental. We have to know what the good is. We have to choose it. We also have to do it. Sometimes we choose, you know, this is what I'm going to do, but in the heat of the moment, we end up doing something else. St. Paul talks about this in his struggle. Why do I do the things that I hate? We need to know what's good, choose what's good, do what's good, and ultimately also enjoy what's good. And that's going to be peak human flourishing. That's going to be peak human excellence there. But in other words, what does this mean? We need the full integration of our human capacities, our intellect, our will, our emotions, all working together in harmony toward one goal, toward one end.
Well, how do we do this? This leads us into our second topic. What are the traditional seven virtues? Traditionally, we have four cardinal virtues and three theological virtues. We have the four cardinal virtues. The word doesn't come from the bird or the color or the bishop. It comes from the Latin word cardo, which means hinge. So the idea is that the whole moral life hinges on these four virtues. When we think about it, we just mentioned we need four things in order to act virtuously. We need the harmony of all these different capacities of our human nature. This is where we get our cardinal virtues. The first is prudence. Prudence is a perfection of our intellect. It's practical wisdom. It's the virtue of determining what is the virtuous act. What is the right thing to do in any given situation? And then we have justice. Justice is a perfection of our will. It's the virtue of consistently giving what is due to other people, making sure that we do right by them. The third cardinal virtue is fortitude. Sometimes we call it courage. Fortitude is this virtue of remaining firmly in the good even in the midst of trial. Sometimes it can be easy to do the good when we're unchallenged, but what happens when we're faced with a challenge? If we don't have fortitude, we're going to flee from the good. Fortitude gives us that strength. It moderates what we call our difficult emotions, the emotions that we only feel in the midst of struggles, things like anger, fear, daring, hope, despair. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and then temperance. Temperance is the last of the cardinal virtues. Temperance is going to moderate the way in which we desire and enjoy all the different goods in life. There are many, many, many different goods in the world, and they are truly good. But what we want to avoid is a disordered attachment to those goods. And that's what leads us into vice and leads us into sin. We want to appreciate these things to the right degree in their proper hierarchy. A good examination of conscience is to take different goods, let's say food and friends, and think, okay, what do I prioritize more? Would I sacrifice food for my friends or would I sacrifice friends for my food? And that gives us a good idea of where do we stand and, and how do we value these things. But temperance enables us to enjoy these things well. So it, it moderates our simple emotions, the emotions that we experience all the time based off of the things that we encounter. Those are the four cardinal virtues, and they are accessible to us by nature. All of us can act and practice these virtues and grow in them. But there's also the life of grace. We know that with baptism comes sanctifying grace as well as these virtues. Thomas Aquinas teaches that God can infuse these character traits into us. Now we might think, how is that possible? Well, we know that God can perform miracles and this is a sort of miracle. That God can create the results of intermediary causes without those intermediary causes. That's all that he does here. By grace, he can give you a virtue that you haven't practiced because that's the sort of thing God can do. But it really becomes our character. It's really a part of who we are. If God infuses us with prudence or with justice, that is my justice, but it's rooted in God's gift. And we have to think in a new category here. We have to think of cooperative activity. That any time I act through a grace-enabled virtue, an infused virtue, it is an action that is my own, but also God's. So when somebody praises us for it, It's appropriate to both say, praise God, and also thank you, because it is my virtue. God can infuse these cardinal virtues, but he also gives us these theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. We hear about them in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. Why do we call them theological? 
The cardinal virtues are all about creaturely things. What created action must I do in this situation? What created thing do I owe to this created person? What emotion should I feel toward this created thing? But the theological virtues are directly about God. And this is why we call them theological, from the Greek theos, for God. Faith, hope, and charity. Believing God. Trusting God. Loving God. And these virtues are going to transform the cardinal virtues. Now we're no longer developing them just according to our human nature. But we know that grace perfects our human nature. It elevates it. It doesn't destroy it. It takes what's there and makes it even better. Now, because of charity in the theological virtues, even what we do according to prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance can be done for a supernatural goal of life everlasting, aiming toward that beatific vision, the fulfillment of all desire, our truest happiness. <clears throat> Let's talk about strategy then. We've mentioned what a virtue is, what are the seven main virtues, what do we do on our part? Well, the first strategy should always be to pray. Because God can infuse these virtues into us, we need to be praying for them. We don't want to just try to, sometimes we get in this mindset where I need to do my part and then I can ask God for help. That's not what he wants. He wants us to ask from the start. So we start with prayer. But more practically, um, we want to strive for these virtues. We want to do our part. In addition to God helping us, we want to do what we can as well. We want to achieve this human excellence, this true human flourishing. But often, we set out to grow in virtues and we're met with little progress in frustration. Now, sometimes this is simply because we're not very patient with ourselves. And we find that God is more patient with ourselves than we are. We will acquire that virtue in time. We have to keep in mind that this is a life goal, right? We're going to should be trying to make progress throughout our entire life. We don't just obtain virtue and say we're done. Something we're constantly working at. But other times, the reason we get frustrated is because we need a more effective strategy. I think intuitively, when we think about needing to grow in a virtue, it goes something like this. We make an examination of conscience. We think of what our sins are. We try to pinpoint why we're sinning. We look at the near occasions of sin, the temptations that we face. Here's where I'm really weak. All of my sins seem to fall in this category. Well, what's the corresponding virtue or the opposite virtue of that vice? And we think, okay, I'm struggling with this. I need to work on this virtue. And we attack that virtue directly. But here's the problem. We're bad at that virtue. The reason we're sinning so much is because we're weak in that virtue. So if we try to attack that virtue head on and just try to grow in it directly, we might have some success. Sometimes people have great success. They're given great gifts of grace. But a lot of times we can get frustrated. Why am I not making progress? I'm trying this over and over and over and I keep making the same mistakes. Well, what I want to offer today is, as I said, an often overlooked but effective strategy that Thomas Aquinas supplies for us that's maybe not intuitive but can really help us. And anecdotally, I've, I've spoken with people about this and they said, yeah, I've, I mean, even for myself personally, I've made more progress with this sort of strategy. And the strategy rests on two concepts Aquinas gives us about virtue, what he calls the connectivity of the virtues and the equality of the virtues. Let me explain what each of those concepts means. First, the connectivity of the virtues. The virtues are all connected. This makes sense from what we've just said about what a virtue is. If virtue entails knowing and choosing and doing and enjoying the good, 
if it consists in this peak human excellence where all of our different human capacities are in harmony and acting toward one end, then we will not truly be virtuous unless we do possess all of the virtues to some extent. For example, if I lack prudence, how am I going to be able to determine what the just act is or what the courageous act is or what the temperate act is? I need prudence and even to, to know where to start. What if I lack um, courage? I want to do a just action, but I see that I may, be, I may be persecuted for it and I back away. If I lack courage, how am I going to exercise that justice? Maybe I lack temperance and because I lack temperance, now I'm committing injustices against other people. I'm eating too much of the food and there's not enough for everybody else. Or I'm objectifying a person. I'm not treating them with the dignity that they have and deserve. So we see pretty quickly that if we're lacking certain virtues, this is going to affect our ability to act by the other virtues. Thomas has this concept then that the virtues are all connected because what virtue does is it integrates us. Sin and vice disintegrate us. They fragment us. We're no longer whole. But virtue makes us whole, it integrates us, it creates this harmony, so they're all connected. Now we could be pretty negative and pessimistic about this concept and say, oh well, if I need all the virtues to have any virtue, then what shot do I have? But in a minute, we're going to look at this positively, and we're going to say, we can use this to our advantage. If all the virtues are connected, then it would seem to grow in any virtue would mean to grow in all of them, to some extent. But to what extent? And this gets us into Aquinas' second concept the equality of the virtues. Now when we hear the word equality, it can throw us off because when we think of equal, we think of equal. The equality that he's talking about here is more of a proportional equality. And the analogy that Thomas uses is of a human hand. When the human hand grows, it doesn't, you know, it grows, all the fingers are growing together and they grow by proportion. It's not the case that first the thumb grows all the way and then the index finger starts growing until it gets finished and then the middle finger, and so on and so on. It's also not the case that when our fingers grow, that they all grow to the same length. Our fingers would look pretty silly, right? Our hands would look pretty silly if they were all the same length. This is the analogy he uses for virtue. He says that yes, the virtues are connected, but they all grow together by equal proportion. So what does this mean? It means that we don't just have to work on, all right, I need to, I need to become prudent. And once I'm prudent, once I've gotten that down, now I can work on justice. And now I can work on temperance. That while I'm working on prudence, I am growing in justice and temperance and fortitude. They all grow by equal proportion. But because they all grow by equal proportion, just like our fingers aren't all the same length, our virtues won't all be the same strength. Sometimes we might think like, okay, there's some sort of upper limit that I can get my virtue to. And if I can get all my virtues that upper limit, I'll be this perfect person. If grace builds on nature, nature, our, our, our virtues, our natural virtues, build on our natural temperament. We all come into this world with strengths and weaknesses. We're more inclined towards certain virtues or certain vices. In short of a miracle of grace, it's always going to be that way. We really need to come to know ourselves. We recognize, what virtues am I strong in? Those are always going to be your strongest virtues. What virtues am I weak in? Those are always going to be your weakest virtues, unless there's some massive conversion that God gives you through a gift of grace. But we can use this to our advantage. If we take virtue connectivity and virtue equality and put it together, then we have a new strategy for growing in virtue. Rather than attacking head-on the virtue that I'm already weak in and already struggling with and not having much success with, 
Focus on the virtues that we're stronger in, that we're already pretty good at. And if we can perfect those, it's going to carry the other virtues with it. Let's take a few examples. Maybe there's somebody who struggles with lust. They constantly objectify people that they're attracted to. They can't focus on their conversations with them. They just start fantasizing. And they're trying to be chased. They're trying to be chased, but they're not getting anywhere. Focus on justice. Focus on what is it that I owe to this person. Okay, I'm committed in this conversation. I'm going to listen to what they have to say. Anytime my mind starts wandering, I'm going to bring myself back in because this is what I owe this person. And by increasing injustice, we will increase in chastity as well because that just act will also be chaste. And so it will habituate us in that chastity. Or take another example. Maybe a student struggles with procrastination. They're always putting off their assignments. But then they think about the love they have for their parents and that their parents are paying for their college education and they want to do right by their parents. So it's that love of their parents that motivates them to then get their work done on time and to get higher grades which then helps them to eliminate their procrastination. Or take somebody who struggles with cowardice. Maybe we have a number of irrational fears. Focus on prudence. If we're a logical thinker, we need to look at the situation rightly. By using prudence, look at the situation. This is nothing to be afraid of. This can't hurt us. This is a small thing. It's a small amount of time. It'll be over soon. And we need to reshape how we apprehend the, the situation so we see it in its truth and that will help bring those emotions in line. Sometimes we can even work within a virtue. We can work on different parts of the virtue. We have these seven virtues, but there are many, many, many more virtues we could name. Patience and piety and friendship, endurance. If we struggle with a certain cardinal virtue, we can work within that virtue. Again, maybe we struggle with chastity, we struggle from lust, but we can work on other types of self-discipline eating well, sleeping well, exercising well, enjoying good entertainment. And that can help with our chastity as well. Now in this short time, we've briefly considered, according to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, what a virtue is, what the main seven virtues are, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, faith, hope, and charity. And also, an often overlooked but effective strategy for growing in virtue that comes from these ideas of the connectivity in the equality of the virtues. There's much more that we could discuss. There are many other sub-virtues and additional strategies out there. Uh, but the best way to learn about virtue is, is really to practice it. So I encourage us now, let us go and strive to bring virtue into a world that thirsts for it. Thank you very much. Now it looks like we have some questions from the audience. Uh, let's take some of these questions. Many companies treat diversity as the most desirable virtue. Is diversity a virtue? This is this phenomenon that we see going on in the world today. We have, um, for a long time, Pope Benedict XVI would talk about the dictatorship of relativism, that we live in an age that doesn't recognize moral truths. This is falling on from Pope John Paul II's uh, encyclical Veritatis Splendor, where he talks about the importance of objectivity, or fides et ratio. For a long time, we've been, suffered under this dictatorship of relativism. Strangely, it seems like we're coming out of it, but with a different problem. We still have relativists, to be sure, but there's almost this anti-magisterium or this new orthodoxy that's coming into the world where we have uh, a culture with its own set of virtues, its own set of values that are directly opposed to what we have as Christians. 
What do we do with that? Some of the, the big ones, diversity was just mentioned in the question, but we hear authenticity or sincerity. You be you. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you're true to yourself. This can be dangerous thinking. Uh, I mean, we may find shards of truth in these different uh, mottos, but at the end of the day, I don't want to be sincerely sinful, right? I don't want to be sincerely vicious. I don't want to be authentically evil. Uh, and in fact, if I were evil or sinful, that's not being authentic because that's not what God made me to be. So to get more directly to the question, diversity. This is another one of these uh, virtues that we hear the culture talking about. If we want to get Thomistic, Aquinas does not have a virtue of diversity. But can we pick diversity apart a little bit? Diversity for diversity's sake um, we could think of change for change's sake. Whenever we have diversity, this can be a great thing. We look at God's creation. There's a whole swath of different creatures. We have human beings who are embodied souls and the only embodied souls. We have other things that are bodies without souls, or at least immortal souls. Some of them are alive. We have plants and animals and a great variety of them. We have a lot of inanimate things. And then we also have angels but not just one type of angel. There's nine different choirs of angels. We have this great diversity, and this is beautiful, and this is good. God has willed it to be this way. All these diverse things reflect some aspect of God. But when we look at diversity for diversity's sake, right? we want to make sure that all that we do, we do within reason. Are we being diverse just for the sake of it, or are we being diverse because we want to actually show forth this beauty of God's creation, or this beauty of... Um, how God can be reflected in different ways. We want to make sure that what we do is reasonable. So in a, in a Thomistic framework, there is no virtue of diversity. We would look toward things like justice and the different types of justice. What is the justice that I owe to my fellow man? What is the justice that I owe to the common good? What is the justice that the common good owes to me? And if in any way our pursuit of diversity is impeding any of those types of justice or causing injustice to come about, then I would say it's not a true and good pursuit of diversity. Could we pursue diversity in a virtuous way? I do believe so. But to take diversity in itself as a virtue, it doesn't seem to be a virtue. It seems to be more a description. A virtue, remember, is a perfection of our human capacities. What capacity is diversity perfecting? Is it perfecting my intellect, my emotions, my will? It seems unclear. So I'd say it's more of a, a mark of beauty, a mark of, uh, it's a description. But in terms of a virtue, I would say we want to pursue virtue, and then through that we'll have an authentic um, display of diversity. Another question, what is the difference between discipline and virtue? It's a good question. I think that discipline is, is closely related. There's certainly overlap here. Sometimes the virtue of temperance is called the virtue of self-discipline or self-mastery. We might think of discipline in one regard as a type of skill or strategy. We could also think of discipline as the state of being disciplined and acting in a disciplined way, and that would be the virtue. So maybe I would distinguish them as discipline is uh, the strategy we have to take or, or the tool or the skill we need to employ in order to become virtuous, virtuous would then be the state of being disciplined and regularly doing acts that are disciplined. Now, discipline as a skill could be different things. I mentioned earlier that we might just do good things out of routine. We might call that discipline. Think of a common example. We see all the time in professional sports, 
these athletes that are rigorously trained. They have their trainers telling them what to eat, what to exercise, how to exercise, when to exercise, how much, when to get to bed, all these different things. Now they should be paragons of temperance, but tragically, so many times when they retire, they fall apart and they become addicted to drugs or um, they, they get very you know, overweight. They just fall apart. And I'm sure there are many reasons for why that happens. But one of them, I think, is because they never really internalized the virtue. That they had their trainer telling them what to do, but they never understood why it was good for them. Maybe they saw some future good, like, okay, if I do what my trainer says, I win the game and I get money, and maybe I'll get more money. But that's an external good. They never internalized it as a good proper to themselves. The athletes who do that do remain temperate. So in that regard, I think we can see a greater distinction between discipline and virtue. That clearly they were disciplined, but they were disciplined out of custom, out of routine, out of duress maybe even. But the discipline that we want to cultivate is the one where we recognize that there's an intrinsic goodness to that discipline that helps us to pursue the good, to become freer, to flourish more, and that would be then the virtue of temperance in that state of discipline. Another question we have, if you grow in courage, how can you also grow in meekness? They seem like opposites. This is actually, I'm, I'm so glad this question came up because this is something that um, I love talking about. You get a lot of different descriptions of what meekness is and I'm Thomistically trained. So I, I come from the thought of Thomas Aquinas and from the perspective of Thomas Aquinas, he would say that most people misunderstand what meekness is. That a lot of times people, I don't know why, sometimes people think meekness means weakness. I don't know if it's because they rhyme. Um, we don't do this with other words, but for whatever reason, we think like meek is a mouse. Well, a mouse is pretty weak, so it must mean weakness. It's not weakness. Sometimes uh, we think of the gospel passage where Jesus says, I am meek and humble of heart or meek and lowly of heart. So we think that meekness is the same as humility. Well, they're not exactly the same. Humility is another virtue that often gets misunderstood. Sometimes people mistake false humility for true humility, but we're focusing on meekness here. St. Thomas Aquinas says that meekness is the virtue that moderates anger. This is one of the hardest emotions to control. Really, anger and desire are our two most strongly felt emotions, the two that are hardest to control. And we see this, the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, don't murder, the Sixth Commandment, don't commit adultery. Well, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount comes to talk about the commandments, he says, not only have it said, don't kill, don't be unjustly angry towards somebody. Not only should you avoid adultery, don't lust after somebody in your heart. He goes right after anger and desire. He recognizes, again, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he knows that in our human weakness, anger and desire are these two toughest emotions to get control of. So meekness then, we have temperance that can help moderate our desires, chastity and, and the other sub-virtues of temperance. Meekness is the virtue that helps us to moderate anger. And it would be um, one of the hardest virtues to obtain. Why? Because he's not saying to eliminate anger. We don't want to eliminate anger. All of our emotions in the abstracts are morally neutral. They could all be good or bad depending on what we feel them toward. For example, um, it's good to desire virtue, it's bad to desire sin. It's good to enjoy doing good things, it's bad to enjoy doing bad things. It's good to hope to become a virtuous person, it's bad to hope to fly, right? Because we can't fly as human beings, that would not make any sense. 
it's good to fear certain things. We should fear sinning. We should fear things that could kill us because we want to preserve our being. But it's bad to fear, you know, balloons or, or clowns or things like that. Anger, we don't want to eliminate it, but we want to properly moderate it. We see that Jesus is meek. First of all, he says that he is, but think of when he cleanses the temple. He shows anger there. But look at the way he does it. He's angry about the right thing at the right time to the right degree and for the right duration. This is all that needs to come together in order for us to be meek. This is why it's so hard. Uh, sometimes we can get some of those right. Sometimes we don't get any of them right. Somebody upsets us, they slight us or whatever, and then I take it out on this person over here. Well, I've already missed the first one. I'm, I'm not angry about the right thing or toward the right person. So we need to be angry at the right thing at the right time. Sometimes we jump, right? We, we anticipate what somebody's going to say or do and we get angry about it, but, and it turns out they never intended that. We need to be angry about the right thing at the right time to the right degree. This is a very hard one, especially sometimes with children. They misbehave and, and we overshoot the target. We, uh, we get too angry about it and we have to remember, you know, they're, they're just kids. Yes, I need to be firm with them, but they're still learning. Um, and then to the right uh, for the right duration, and this is where really the deadly sin of wrath comes in. A lot of times people think of wrath as just extreme anger in degree. It can also be extreme anger in duration. Unforgiveness is a symptom of, um, of wrath when we hold on to something for a long time and we never really forgive the person. But we turn back to Jesus and cleansing the temple. Who's he mad at? He's mad at the money changers because of what they're doing. They're making a, the temple into a den of thieves. He doesn't get mad at the people buying and exchanging their money. He gets mad at the people actually doing the wrong thing. He gets mad to the right degree. He's there, he cleanses the temple, but he doesn't like brutally abuse them or anything like that. He also is angry for the right duration. He cleanses the temple and then he moves on. We don't see him for the next few chapters talking with the apostles like, can you believe those money changers? Like, what were they thinking? They made my father's house into a den of thieves and they're probably going to do it again. And, oh man, right? He, he lets it go. And so meekness is actually incredible strength. We think of the beatitude, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land or inherit the earth. How does that reward match with that virtue? Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land. I think a, a great illustration of this is imagine a person standing in a river and they're standing against the, the current and the current's coming against them. This is a good image of meek. The, the person who's meek is able to stand their ground and stand firmly in the good. They can control their anger. They don't lash out. If we lash out, the current's going to take us away. Right? So we, we could think of our society and the current is all these ways that we're persecuted and all these insults that are lodged at us. We can lash out at it and lose our control and then also lose conversions. Or we can stand our ground and know right, when to attack, when to endure. Uh, we think of a boxer, right? They need to know when to swing and, and when to just kind of uh, take the hits. That's what the meek person is. This is why they inherit the land, because they're the last one standing. They outlast all of their enemies. They outlast all their persecutors. They let their enemies tire themselves out. But because they have this interior strength, they're able to outlast them and then they conquer. So it's a great question. Um, so I would say meekness isn't opposed to courage, but actually meekness is... is you, you need courage in order to have true meekness. And we have another question. What vice can cause the most harm and which virtue can cause the most good? 
This is a pretty open-ended question. I don't know that I could definitively answer it, um, but I can offer a few different suggestions. In one regard, tying back to what we talked about with our natural temperaments and the equality of the virtues and how some virtues will always be stronger than others. In that regard, I'd say whatever virtue you're stronger is, whatever virtue you're stronger in is going to do the most good, right? If you're working on that one, whatever virtue you're weakest in or whatever vice you have uh, to the greatest degree, that's going to do the most harm. So on one level, we could say it's somewhat subjective depending on the virtues and vices we have. But to be a little bit more objective, the obvious answer is charity. Charity we call it the love of God and neighbor, but I think sometimes we don't think through what that means. There are many different human loves. We have friendship love, we have erotic love, romantic love, we have kind of general affection for our fellow man. But charity is a divine love. We can only receive it by grace. We can't acquire it on our own. So when God gives us charity, it is a, is a created charity, right? But he is giving us the ability to love with the love with which God loves himself, the love with which God loves all of creation, that love that eternally exists between the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God infuses us with that love. And I think this is one of these concepts that we can hear it and it sounds poetic and beautiful, but we really need to spend time meditating on it. And when it clicks, and I would say, maybe for me it's intellectually clicked, but once it clicks in the heart, that's what sets the world on fire. That's the faith that moves mountains. When we really recognize that if we're in the state of grace, the Most Holy Trinity dwells spiritually within us and gives us the ability to love with the very love with which God loves, that's when with God all things are possible. Right? That's when we have the faith to move mountains. So in that regard, I would say charity forms all the virtues. It makes all of our virtues better because it orders them all toward that supernatural end. And that's really what it's about. It's the most perfect virtue. It's the love of God simply because he's God, simply because he's good. Now, that's hard. Um, how do I acquire that? It has to be by grace. It has to be by prayer. So we, we pray to God, fill me with your love. In those moments where I don't feel like I have love, fill me with it. When I feel like I'm running on empty, fill me with your love. In charity, because it's a movement of the will, we might not always feel it. We think of the dark night of the soul that many saints have experienced where they don't feel God's love at all. Maybe they don't even feel love toward him, but they're closer to God than they've ever been. And so it's a tricky virtue in that regard. In terms of vices um, that would be most harmful then, I, I suppose we could look at the vices opposed to charity. In pride, for Thomas, pride isn't really its own vice. He says that pride is in every single virtue. Pride, rather than loving God and loving neighbor uh, through God, pride is the love of self at the expense of God and neighbor. Anytime that we sin, we offend against God, we offend against neighbor, and so pride is going to be in every single sin. Beyond that, um, trying to root out pride, we want to look at, I think really envy is one of the, the worst sins. Envy is the sorrow for another's good. Envy is different than jealousy. I might be jealous of somebody's virtue or their singing talent, meaning I wish I also had that. That's good if you're jealous about a good thing. But envy means I wish they didn't have that. I wish that person couldn't sing, that they get laryngitis. I wish that person couldn't play guitar well, that the, the guitar breaks, that they you know, break their fingers. And envy, I think, is one of the darkest vices that we have here. This is what the devil has for us. He knows that he can't defeat God. He just wants to defeat us, right? He says, here's what I'm going to do. 
I can't have heaven. I can't have the beatific vision because of my choice. So I just don't want them to have it. I will never have it myself, but I'm going to prevent other humans from having it. That's the demonic envy that's there. And I think we need to examine our consciences and, and look closely at that so that we don't um, act out of envy and we want to root that out as fast as we can. Well, thank you all for, for your time here and uh, for all of your questions. Those are very great questions. To see the recording of this lecture as well as other lectures we've done in the past and future lectures we will do, please go to getprinciples.com and you can see all of the, the recordings there. I'll also do a very quick plug. It was mentioned at the beginning that I recently uh, came out with a new book. This is with Ascension Press, Saintly Habits, Aquinas' Seven Simple Strategies You Can Use to Grow in Virtue. The Connectivity of the Virtues strategy today is from chapter four of the book. If you're interested in, in diving into Thomas's thought, this is meant for popular audiences. It has some charts to help organize thought, and it's available at Ascension Press's website, ascensionpress.com slash saintlyhabits. Thank you very much.